Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to a special edition of The Soul of a Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. You can find Soul of a Nation on iTunes, Google Play, and on Sojo.net. For more news, resources, and reflections on the nation's moral and health crisis, visit Sojo.net. Today, I'm speaking with Rob Shank about the evangelical vote, particularly the white evangelical vote in this election season. Rob Shank is an ordained evangelical minister who spent 35 years as an activist on the religious right, particularly concerned about abortion. Uh, something he now has some reflections on. <laughs> Let's say that. In his memoir, Costly Grace, an Evangelical Minister's Rediscovery of Faith, Hope, and Love, Rob writes of his three conversions, from the nominal Judaism of his youth to born-again Christian faith, then to, Ronald, to a Ronald Reagan Republican religion, as he calls it, and finally back to a Matthew 25 discipleship. Oh, I like that. With the posthumous help of German martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Today, Rob is president of the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute in Washington, D.C. So, Rob, thank you for joining me today. I'm really grateful for your time. How is your spirit these days? Well, first, Jim, thank you very much for the honor of joining you. It's my pleasure, really, and uh, and I'm delighted uh, to be with you. You have been a mentor from a distance for a long time, quietly sometimes, now very loudly. You know, honestly, I I wouldn't be completely candid if I didn't say I wasn't a little vexed at the moment. I think, uh, you know, a lot of us are troubled about the times that we're living in, the tensions that we're experiencing in America and indeed around the world. And then, of course, we have this looming, very consequential decision in front of us of who at least the American people will choose, and more particularly for me, uh, who evangelicals will choose uh, to lead the United States uh, for another four years. I think the last four years have been very divisive. Uh, In many ways, our government has been, uh, at least in the executive branch, very deceptive with the American people. And that's been very destructive of the social fabric. Uh, And Christians are called to be uh, both salt and light. Salt is a preservative. Light illuminates, uh, shows things as they really are. And we haven't been doing a good job at that. Uh, My community has not. So I'm a little vexed. And yet, at the same time, I'm optimistic because I do think uh, truth does triumph in the end. Good Uh, triumphs over bad because God is good and God superintends over the universe, over time, over the course of human events. So I feel anticipatory of a time, I hope soon, but maybe later when when we uh, kind of get back on, on the right path. But we're in the storm of all that right now. And so I've had a few sleepless nights. (laughs) Storm is the right word. Uh, I like both the vexed because that does describe what many of us are feeling, but also you say optimistic to get back to something. So let's, or maybe move forward in a way that really gets back to the right things. Um, let, let's unpack all that. It's, uh, it's a great, great uh, big beginning. In a recent PBS 
interview about Donald Trump's violent clearing of protesters for a, some would say a political stunt in front of a church in Lafayette Park, you said that it was a sacrilege, profane, and a very egregious violation uh, where the president, after moving out the protesters, held up a Bible, ironically, upside down in front of that church. In the same interview, you say there has been, you say a moral collapse in your own religious community, a moral collapse in your own religious community. In your opinion, what are the consequences of this moral collapse in the evangelical community? Well, they are many. Um, I would start with a loss of true north. And for us, true north is the nature of God. And the Bible is crystal clear on that. And, you know, white evangelicals say that the Bible is the last word on everything, period. There's no debate over what the Bible says explicitly. And it says, God is love. It's that succinct. I think it's one of the most powerful statements in scripture, if you can grade them in any way. And so I would have to say, first, we have lost our bearings on the very nature of the God we proclaim and that we say we worship uh, and with whom we have a relationship, a personal relationship. Uh, I love uh, the encounter between Jesus and uh, the, the rich young ruler in that little pericope in, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, uh, we're told Jesus loved him. And if, in fact, a disciple disciplines himself or herself, uh, themselves, uh, after our Master, our Lord, Jesus, then we have to love even those that aren't in sync with us. But that isn't what we've been doing lately. And we've actually been celebrating a political figure, I'm sorry to say, in Donald Trump, who holds people routinely and strategically in contempt, uh, in, with disrespect, uh, with, with animosity, uh, even, even with at least words of violence, sometimes gesticulations of violence, threats of violence. And so we've been utterly demoralized. We've lost our moral compass. And we have to reclaim the compass first and then uh, resync it because we don't know where north, south, east, and west is now. And this has happened before to religious communities. They not only lose their way, but often they actually become channels of enormous human injury and suffering. History is replete with those stories. So that's where I'd say we, we, we can begin with that. But of course, there are many more consequences. You're, it's, it's very uh, significant, I think, that you're, you're beginning with the encounter Jesus had with the world and with everyone he met, even those who didn't follow him or who were, but, but the encounter is an encounter of love. Jesus loved it. That's very powerful um, recognition and, and, and often not just a president, but the evangelical community, particularly white evangelicals are, are not known for that encounter 
with people who are different than them. And contempt is often, or judgment, or attack, or um, uh, being made, keeping separate from them and the others. Uh, and your personal faith journey is fascinating because it leads you back to Jesus. Um, and I'm from that same tradition too. And my salvation was being led back to Jesus almost almost uh, away from my tradition. So uh, you've been led back to Jesus. Now, what are your recent reflections on this journey that you've been on, uh, given the focus of white evangelicals in our current political landscape? How did you get led uh, back to Jesus? Yeah, and the operative word there that you use is back, because it was a return. Uh, and, and that, you know, there's a beautiful theme of return in the whole biblical story. For me, my first encounter with Jesus was in the context of a very caring, very loving Christian community that was very inviting, very expansive, op uh, welcoming, uh, very open to receive others, uh, and warmly so. And I saw Jesus in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, in fact, the encounter, another word you used, very powerful. My first encounter with Christ was in a sermon on the Sermon on the Mount. And here I'm listening. I, I was raised in a non-religious Jewish home. I, I knew very little about Jesus. Jesus literally was something you said when you slammed your thumb with a hammer. I mean, that was about it. And then I had a a boyhood friend who had an image of him hanging on his wall. It was, I thought, a little grotesque. And I, it was just, Jesus was a complete mystery. So here I start listening to this rabbi who spoke about uh, care for the poor, for the marginalized, the oppressed, the suffering, the lonely, the forgotten. And I just found that uh, so appealing. I was drawn to it. Uh, I responded to what is traditionally called an altar call in an evangelical church where you go forward and you pray and you ask God to forgive you of your sins and you confess Jesus as your Lord to follow him and your savior to rescue you. And that's how I encountered Christ. And ironically, uh, it was just about the time, mid 1970s, when this uh, politician emerged kind of out, of out of the shadows, out of Georgia, uh, Jimmy Carter, who was an unabashed, born-again, Bible-believing and teaching Christian. And, and I became conscious of him, and I started thinking, wow, he's the model of what a Christian is. Then he runs for, you know, he runs for president, and I cast my first presidential vote for Jimmy Carter. Why? Because he reminded me of that sermon on the Sermon on the Mount. I wouldn't vote for a Democrat again for 44 years because later on I'd have a different kind of encounter, but that one was, was revolutionary and I don't regret a minute of it. And I've kind of gone back to it after a long, uh, not to be cute, but sojourn, <laughs> uh, I say to the, to the founder of sojourners, uh, away from Jesus, but I had to come back. And I did after I looked at my own errors over a period of about 35 years, drifting further and further away from that Jesus I had met, 
what took you away? What took you away? You drifting away from that sermon in the mountain you saw on Jimmy Carter, but then it something took you away for a long time. Yeah, yeah, it sure did. Um, well, I went to a conference in 1984, and I heard Ronald Reagan, uh, the first uh, sitting president to address a body of evangelicals. By that time, I had taken my seat at the table of evangelical leadership. And I was in the front row listening to this president affirming and reinforcing, uh, you know, what we stood for. And it was very seductive. And I thought at that time, you know, I was just making a further step into using my Christian witness as a way of assisting you know, American society to, to kind of write itself morally. But over time, that would really become more and more of an exercise in power, in dominating others. I would sit at tables with Christian, you know, evangelical and political leaders. I remember one meeting in particular was inside the United States Capitol. And I remember the the person chairing the meeting said, we don't want a seat at the table anymore. We want to own the table. We want to control the table. And it was said exactly in that spirit. And over a period of some 20 years, uh, I would take a leadership position in the national, the, the very, the, the, the uh, almost militant, uh, certainly very aggressive uh, anti-abortion movement in the United States. And I'm careful to say that because it started out as a pro-life commitment for me, but it eventually became exclusively anti-abortion. I forgot about the women, the babies we would talk about, and it became a matter of moving to the next political or judicial victory. And finally, I sat in a room where uh, a group of uh, Republican strategists sat with even white evangelical strategists and it was announced as soon as we put abortion in the party platform, you guys are stuck. You have nowhere else to go. That's exactly what was said in that room. And I know it because I was in the room where it happened, <laughs> if you will. And I heard it and I felt it. And Jim, you know, you've been around political people much more than I have. You've been in the White House many more times than I have. And once you get a taste of that power, some people handle it well, I would argue that case for you. I handled it very badly. I became possessed by it. And I, there were days I didn't know who was Lord of my life, whether it was Jesus or the latest uh, Republican political figure. Uh, I, lost, I lost my bearing. So there was really a, a, a political takeover of the evangelical world, uh, which m many have uh, actually written about and pointed to, but you're right about the, the, the access to power being such a, a temptation. In Washington, D.C., they think access to power should be enough for you. Uh, if they return your calls or uh, if they call you or want you in a meeting and it's almost less results what happens what particularly what happens to those who you talked about at the beginning those who are poor those who are marginalized those who are oppressed 
because that's the test of politics for people of faith, what happens to those people. The Bible is also crystal clear on that, as you said before, but just being in the room is what they they want. And both sides try try and do that. And and access to power is a very dangerous thing. And what they're offering, what the evangelicals were offered uh, by these actually Republican operatives who created the moral majority, <laughs> uh, they offered power. Um, um, on your blog, you have a series of posts that I would encourage people to read uh, called What's Gone Wrong with Evangelicals? What's Gone Wrong with Evangelicals? What reflections from the series around faith and politics would you like to share with our listeners? Well, you know, I guess if I were to summarize, I can't remember now, I think I have seven installments in that series. And if I were to summarize the seven, um, it would be, uh, you know, basically this, that what has essentially gone wrong with evangelicals is that we've lost the evangel. That very word means the good news. Uh, and we've largely become purveyors of bad news, uh, carping about the culture, whining about persecution, about uh, elitists looking down their noses at us. Uh, we complain that, um, you know, we can't do what we want to do, say what we want to say, um, that, you know, the world is going to hell in a handbasket and ruining it for us. And, and that's the core of it. You know, the gospel, the evangel, those are uh, interchangeable terms, the good news, the message that we carry about Jesus to the world is not about us. Uh, as you referred to my posthumous mentor, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, and I know you are a scholar on Bonhoeffer, uh, and, you know, I learned more and more about him, uh, this young, brave, brilliant uh, pastor, Christian ethicist, theologian in Nazi-era Germany who spoke out against Adolf Hitler and paid for it with his life at age 39 when he was hanged by the Nazis. But Bonhoeffer said, Jesus is consummately the one for others. It's all about the other. It's not about me. It's not about us. It's not about my. It's about you and yours and them, not us. And what we ended up doing in the movement I became a part of for too long was waging a war against the other. We declared the other as our enemy. We didn't love the other, as you said early on that point about the uh, rich young ruler. In Jesus' encounter with the other, the rich young ruler, uh, who, who, uh, who, you know, uh, walked away from Jesus. He, he, didn't, he didn't accept the message of Jesus, and yet Jesus loved him. Ours was not a relationship of love to the other, but in fact, a relationship of contempt and sometimes hatred in the movement, I, in, in, the, in the wing of the pro-life movement I was a part of. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm ashamed. I'm, I'm um, deeply 
regretful to even say this, but it got so terrible that members of the movement I was a leader in shot and killed abortion doctors because they saw them as the extreme other, the oppositional other. I thought that could never happen. I decried it. Uh, I denounced it, condemned it when it did happen. But it shook me very, very deeply. And I would carry that for a long time until finally I had my own reckoning with this gospel and had to repent and turn back to the Jesus who loved the other. And that was a complete reorientation for me. Use the word the other here. It's a very powerful uh, theological word in your in the Judaism that you're, you came up from or in um, how in the Hebrew scriptures, how we treat the other is so important in active uh, faithful Judaism, how we treat the other. And then in, in, in being disciples of Jesus, you say it's, it's all about the other. And in fact, Jesus in his last, last, uh, the first, that first uh, reference to the evangel and the good news is of course in Nazareth, his opening sermon, I like to call it his Nazareth manifesto, his opening gig, his press conference, his first <laughs> mission statement, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, quoting Isaiah, because he has anointed me to bring good news, and that's the word, evangel, good news, to the poor and the oppressed and the outcast and set free those who have been oppressed. Uh, that's his opening statement. And then in his last talk, before going into Jerusalem to be crucified and then resurrected, he said, and in particular, how you treat the others who are the least of these. That's the text that was my conversion text. You know, I was hungry. I was thirsty. I was naked. I was sick. I was a stranger. I was in prison. Uh, and, and, and how you treat them is how much you love me. And that, so that's the test of the other. In fact, the least of these is the ones that Jesus says, I'm among them. And yet, as you know, um, most white Christians voted for Donald Trump in the last election, eight out of 10. That became an iconic figure, that 81% that caused you and I much, much pain, heartache. But up to six, almost six to 10 of other white Christians, Catholics and mainline Protestants also did. There seems to be a peeling off uh, of some uh, mainline white Protestants and white Catholics. Uh, we don't know yet. Election day will, results will tell. But it seems like the support for Donald Trump, who is clearly, nobody would call him a man for others. Uh, clearly, he's against the others, and he keeps campaigning against the others, fear and uh, anger and grievance and even hatred and violence. But report the support has seemingly remained steady for this president among white evangelicals. So I guess... You talk and listen to a lot of people uh, in this world still. You have lots of friends who are in that, that world. Uh, what do you expect from the white evangelical vote in 2020? What do you expect to happen and why? Yeah, you say that I talk to a lot of folks. I do. In fact, I have friends of decades, some of whom now work for Donald Trump, and they report to him, uh, some of them daily. Uh, and, you know, they're deep inside that culture. Uh, that world, that message, uh, that method that they're using. And I grieve for them. I love them. I will always love them. Uh, but 
it, it's distressing uh, to watch that. You know, what do I expect? I think you're right. I get uh, messages almost daily. You probably do too, Jim, I'm sure, uh, probably more than I do, but lots of evangelicals, some of them leaders, names people would know, uh, who write me and say, I just can't support him a second time. I can't do it. One wrote me uh, in the wee hours of yesterday morning saying, I've been wrestling and struggling in prayer in my conscience, and I've switched. I will not be casting my vote a second time for Donald Trump. And in working with groups like uh, Vote Common Good and others, I've been watching statistically what's happening here. And there is right now about a 5% reduction uh, in support for him because people are wrestling with their own conscience, their sense of what God, you know, uh, commands and, and desires of us, and that somehow Donald Trump, you know, he, he certainly has to own a lot of blame for what has happened, a lot. Yet at the same time, we can't blame him entirely for what has happened to our white evangelical community. We were on this path long before Donald Trump was ever a candidate, and we were fostering a certain kind of culture f for which, um, uh, you know, uh, Donald Trump became a kind of embodied embodiment of, of an ethos, a culture, a, a tone that we were building over a long period of time. And so in a sense, he just became a great big screen on which we projected ourselves and, and called out not the best of us, but the worst in us. And it's been reinforced back and forth in this symbiotic relationship between white evangelicals and Donald Trump. I often describe it as a Faustian bargain uh, because a deal was made in a particular room. I, I just wrote about the consummation of that deal. I was present sitting at a table when it happened in Cleveland during the Republican National Convention. I was at the table and uh, a colleague, a very well-known evangelical leader who had run for president himself turned to me and said, look, we'll plug our noses, we'll cast our vote for Donald Trump, and then we'll go and puke if we have to. And that was the deal. It was corruption of the soul it would give us access and ability uh, to manipulate the levers of power, but it would exact a huge price from us. And some people are coming to terms with that now. And that's okay. That's okay, because that's what the spiritual life is about. It's realizing, okay, I am not just a sinner at one time and in one place, but constantly. And I fail, and, and I have to come to terms, confess my failings, beg God for pardon and forgiveness, make restitution as best I can. I had to rectify this, reset on love, on decency, on respect for the other. And we could do that or we could do it in a number of other ways. You know, it's not just simply by casting a vote. It's, it's certainly by coming to terms with the commands of Christ. And when he said, there's nothing more important in all of God's word, the 66 books of the canon, the Bible that we carry under our arms and read and preach and pray from, Jesus said, summarize it all, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. Okay.
The screen that you talk about was put up in, um, I often talk, I often talk about our, our better angels and our worst demons. And we have both in this country and, uh, and it's often a bargain, this Faustian bargain that you eloquently describe it's for power and we give up a lot. The cost has been so, so great. But yesterday, Sarah Pulliam Bailey wrote in the Washington Post, Sarah Pulliam Bailey recently wrote in the Washington Post that Trump is sparking a rise in patriot churches called patriot churches. The article notes that, that the belief in Christian nationalism is a top predictor of whether or not someone supports Donald Trump. Uh, how did belief in the teachings of Jesus, as you're describing, become seemingly subordinate to a vision of American patriotism, uh, Christian nationalism? And what can we do about that? Is there a meaningful difference between Christian nationalism and white nationalism? I don't think there's a meaningful difference uh, between them because nationalism, again, is all about domination of the other, control, intimidation, domination, not servanthood, not service, not the washing of feet, the healing of the sick, uh, the visitation of the lonely and the imprisoned. It's about domination, control. And Jesus said, the heathen, the non-believer, the, the anti-Christian, or as you have, I've heard you so powerfully use the term, the anti-Christ, not necessarily in the uh, you know, uh, the, the, the person, but in the spirit of that, uh, wishes to control others. But Jesus said, you're not called to that. You're called to serve others. So uh, nationalism in any expression uh, is the opposite of Jesus and his gospel. So there's that factor. The other here is, and, and this was really what led me to my third conversion, the one I'm living out now, 10 years ago, when I took a hiatus from Washington, D.C., a leave of absence from the organization I had built and led for three decades, and I would eventually surrender. Uh, but I took time away, and I looked at the experience of the church, the evangelical church, the Evangelische Kirche in Germany during the rise of Adolf Hitler and Nazism, which came to embrace both. In fact, Paul Althaus, one of the most popular evangelical Bible teachers of that day, declared Adolf Hitler a gift and miracle from God. And I looked at this phenomenon and how this happened, the temptation to go from the heavenly to the earthly, from the transcendent God to the, the temporal uh, and political power is very easy to do. It's the constant temptation in front of us. And I saw where the evangelicals of Germany caved to that temptation. They, they gave into it. And, and you know, I, I call that... Uh, the, you know, original Luciferic temptation where uh, Lucifer said, I will rise above God. I'll be more powerful than God. And when you grab this earthly political power, there's a, a primitive and very sinful um, 
impulse within us to dominate the other person. And it gives you a way to do that, a very powerful way to do that. That happened to my white evangelical American uh, version of the German uh, experience. Let's go into that a bit as painful and scary as it is. You've thought about this a lot. Uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it sometimes does rhyme. Um, and some people are making the comparison of Christians supporting Hitler to the current political environment in the U.S. As president and founder of the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute, named for a man who spoke the truth to power in the confessing church, what do you think of this comparison of what's happening now to what happened indeed in the 1930s? Well, I'll make it clear. There was only ever one Adolf Hitler. There only ever will be one Adolf Hitler. There was only one Germany of 1933. There was only one Deutsche Christian, German Christian movement. There was only one Holocaust. Uh, to compare anything to it is to diminish uh, the importance of all those things. So I, I'm always careful not to do that. We live in our own time and in our own place. But as you say, history does rhyme. Uh, and we often make the same mistakes. If we don't learn from history, we're doomed to make the same mistakes. And I would argue that the white American evangelical community is making the same mistake that the Evangelische Kirche, the, the German uh, evangelicals made in 1933, when they exchanged the challenge of obedience to a transcendent Lord, Jesus, and instead said, you know what, that's too hard. It's much easier to embrace an earthly savior. And they did. His name happened to be Adolf Hitler. But we do that today, and I'm afraid that we've done it in Donald Trump. I have heard Donald Trump referred to as a savior who is saving America, rescuing America, saving us from something. It's always ill-defined what it is, but he's saving us. He has said himself that nobody has done more to, to protect Christianity and that if he isn't reelected, uh, we religion will be finished or words to that effect, as if he is the savior of Christianity. Well, we only have one savior, Jesus Christ, only one. And the church in Germany lost sight of that and transferred their devotion to an earthly savior. The same has happened here. The church in, in Germany failed to rectify that. We must rectify it. And I think now is the urgent time when, when we must rectify that grave error. So rectifying that grave error, that's a very powerful, um, that's a very powerful vision. Um, for us, it's not going to be rectified by just uh, making a different political choice, but it really is what you experience going back to Jesus. How, how, how do this election will be a, I think faith is on the ballot in this election and what we mean by faith and, and how white evangelicals finally, after seeing how Donald Trump has, has behaved and his policies and his words uh, uh, for four years now, how white evangelicals, white Christians, white Catholics, mainline Protestants vote will be, will be very 
uh, indicative of where we are in terms of our faith, I think, not just our politics. How win or lose for Donald Trump, and there are grave consequences uh, for the outcome of this election, particularly for the other, particularly for the least of these. And when black Christians and black parents and black pastors tell me this is a life and death election for them, when you ask why they talk about it's about the safety and future of our children, it's as basic as that. How do white evangelicals, given where we are now, whatever the outcome of the election, how do white evangelicals come back to Jesus? Well, no doubt each in his, her, their own way. Um, but I would say the first thing is, of course, repentance. Jesus preached that. He said, repent. Uh, John the Baptist heralded that message ahead of Jesus, repent. And repentance means, first of all, owning our sins, our errors. Uh, we have to look at our own history in the white evangelical church. It's a painful one. It's a very difficult one to look at on the American side. Uh, because, for example, uh, you know, we have a tortured history with slavery as just one. Um, the very cruel in some instances, murderous treatment of indigenous peoples on this continent, uh, and on and on it goes. Um, and we have to own those as a community. You know, some people, in fact, uh, national evangelical leaders have said to me, I don't have to take responsibility for what people did in the past. Well, that's not the record we have in scripture. Uh, repentance often began with we have sinned against you. It, it's, we, are, we are a unit as much as we are individuals. In fact, I know I quote Bonhoeffer too much. My wife, Cheryl, tells me, honey, you're talking about Bonhoeffer too much. <laughs> I don't want to bore anyone. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer had some real insights at a time and place few of us will ever experience. And Bonhoeffer said uh, that we cannot know Christ outside of community. Because as Paul said, each one of us is a different part of the body. So how do we know the, the body, the embodiment, the person of Jesus without knowing all of his individual parts? Some a hand, some a foot, some an ear, some an eye, and so forth. We make up a whole as a body. And so we're corporate. And, and corporate includes the past and what's been conveyed to us by the past into the present. And we have to own those things. So let's begin by simply saying, first of all, we serve a Lord who is a man of color. He was a Levantine Mediterranean Jew. He would have had very dark skin, jet black, uh, thick, uh, coarse hair. He would have been short. Uh, not at all the lithe, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Scandinavian that we imagine him to be. He was quite the opposite. He was a man of color. We serve a man of color. We have to get this racial thing right. That's part of it. The other part of it is, look, we all like power and influence. It's, it's, it's in our human DNA. It goes way back to the Garden of Eden. We want to be in charge of not just ourselves, but others too. And we have to repent of that because we're called to serve to give ourselves, to sacrifice ourselves, to take up our cross and follow 
him. So we have to own all this stuff. That's what repentance is. And re recommit. You know, a lot of evangelical churches use this term. Uh, we call it recommitments. You have your first commitment to Christ, then you recommit to Christ over and over as your Lord, as your model. And looking at the person of Jesus, and 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 you write on this, Jim, and you preach on it, and you speak on it so much, and, and you have been a reminder to my conscience, even in the years, Jim, when I opposed you, and it pains me to say that, I was your opponent. And I didn't always speak well of you, Jim. And I, I confess that and I beg your pardon. I've never had this opportunity before, but I'll use it now. Because even in those years, you spoke to my conscience and it would just calibrate me a little better. And, and I would think of those things on my, on my pillow at night and I would have to come to terms with them. And I think we all do now. We have to say, what's happened here? Own it confess it, beg God's pardon and forgiveness for it, beg the pardon and forgiveness of others, as I do of you, Jim, and, and others, uh, and, and then set on the right path. And that will be a lonely road. Jesus announced that. He said, the way that leads to life is narrow, and few are those who find it. It will be a lonely road, not a big one, Donald Trump loves to brag about the size of his rallies and how somehow that indicates that he's better than anybody else. Jesus said quite the opposite. The smaller your crowd, the closer you are to God. So let's just recalibrate all of that. When my head's in my pillow um, at night, um, it's the same. It's my need to recommit, to recommit. I love that phrase because it's never just a commitment that you make one time, but you recommit over and over again because, because of our sin. We're, we just get so full of ourselves and, and so full of, of, um, of uh, you know, the worst of ourselves, our, our sin. And yet it's that, that man of color who called his disciples to come and follow him for a kingdom of God that really was the revert, reversing of the values of this world. And we, the world's values get in us again and again and again. And what it means to recommit and recommit and recommit. And you have done that in such a powerful way. But to do what you're saying we need to do is going to take, is going to take um, uh, the deepest kind of, of prayer. Uh, praying for our brothers and sisters, praying for the churches, praying for the outcome of this election, praying for those who will be impacted the most by it. So, Reverend, as a Reverend, uh, would you close this wonderful time of conversation in a prayer, in a prayer for peace in this time, which could be so conflicted and contested, and even the danger of civil unrest uh, in this country, which we're trying to prepare for, but uh, I think we need to pray. So could you close this time appropriately in a prayer for this nation and our churches and even our evangelical world and for each other? Sure, sure. Thank you for the invitation. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God who loved us even 
when we did not love you. Who gave out of your love the one you loved most, your only son, Jesus, for the benefit of others. We pray, help us to embody that witness of love in the world. Love for the unlovely, for the unloved, for those who have been subjected to hate and contempt, who have been forgotten. Help us, Lord, to follow after you and to reach out and touch them with your love. As your servant, uh, the, the great evangelist, uh, John Wesley, uh, admonished us, help us to do all the good we can, by all the means we can, in all the ways we can, in all the places we can, at all the times we can, to all the people we can, as long as we ever can. We confess, Lord, to do so, we need your help. Help us so that we can help others in your loving name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us, Rob. Uh, it's been a great blessing to me. Um, to hear more from Rob, follow him on Twitter at Reverend Rev Rob Shank, Rev Rob Shank one, Rev Rob Shank number one, and read his blog at RevRobShank.com. That's S C H E N K, RevRobShank.com. For more Soul of a Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and follow me if you'd like on Twitter at Jim Wallace. Blessings to all of you this day.